Hello and welcome to the socialworldpodcast.com. Your host is Dave Niven. Today's show is sponsored by David Niven Associates. Well, hello there and welcome to Podcast 20. I'm Dave Niven and this is the Social World Podcast. Just a few thoughts for today before we start. Um, a few thank yous. Firstly, Amanda Taylor from Twitter. And she said she loved the interview with Lynn Romeo last week and she found the podcast to be an excellent new medium to connect with Lynn Romeo and listen to her views and opinions. So the more of them I can do, the better. And thanks very much, Amanda. And then Emma Victoria Holton, Google Plus. She said that I really like your subject area. It's an area I've not come across before in the podcasting world. She doesn't know if anyone else who does anything else linked to social work. Well, I'm not so sure in this country there's very many. I had a quick scan of your program, quick listen to your program, and I think the length's good. Don't think you need to go shorter than that. And it's also nice seeing a Brit flying the flag for podcasting. Thanks very much, Emma Victoria. Now, Luke Block on Twitter saw uh, the conference that we're organizing advertised by BaspScan at the co another conference in Southampton, and he thought it was really interesting. And he had the privilege, his word, of meeting Lynn McDonald, who's speaking at the Bristol event on the 4th of April. I'd also like to sort of say and do a little plug for the Compass Jobs Fair event in Birmingham on the 19th of March, World Social Work Day. And I'm really looking forward to any of you that are going to be there. I'm going to do uh, technology in social work, uh, cutting edge, and I'm really looking forward to having a good workshop, good seminar. And please come along if you're there. It's free, 19th of uh, March. Compass Jobs Fair, Birmingham. So thanks. Now today, I was a guest on another podcast, which is always a real pleasure. And in this case, it was the podcast Freelance Bristol Mum. And that's Faye Dicker. And it's a wonderful podcast. And it was really lovely to be relaxed and to be interviewed instead of being on the other side of the microphone interviewing other people. So please have a listen to that. And following that, we're also going to uh, have a listen to the BBC interview that I did on the second anniversary of the death of Daniel Pelka, which was a, a little boy who died, who had been starved to death by his mother, who's now in prison. But it had wide-ranging implications for all sorts of professionals. So, here we go. I'm joined today by David Niven, who's the former chairman of the British Association of Social Workers and also a fellow podcaster in Bristol. And great for us to catch up. There's lots of overlays and synergies in the way the two of us work. So we thought we'd start by finding some common ground and taking a look through some of the, the papers and the headlines that have been making uh, the papers in the last week. David, you've got some really interesting one. I quite like the one that you kicked off with here about sharp-elbowed parents. Tell yeah. me more. Well, this was David Laws, the schools minister. And he was talking about how children achieve and how they don't achieve and um, what he reckoned were helpful things. 
And he started talking about this phrase, sharp-elbowed parents. In other words, the ones that would virtually do anything to help their children attain um, good results. Mm. And he was saying things like, uh, to do all you can to help your children to succeed in life is exactly what we want everybody to be doing. Well, that's fair enough. Mm. But he then went on to talk about sharp-elbowed parents are admirable role models fighting for their children's interests. And he said, the sharp-elbowed middle classes dominate the system and school places. And that any other complaints like that were misplaced. He said, pushy parents and those willing to pay for private schooling were well worth emulating. (laughs) And I thought, well, you know. Uh, but he said then people sometimes complain about these parents and people that seek to invest a huge amount of money to give their young people opportunities. But we shouldn't complain about any parent who's doing these things. Well, that's fine up to a point, I think. But, I mean, for goodness sake, he never acknowledged the fact that loads of parents actually go over the top and loads of parents, uh, which we've come across lots, actually almost... Um, well, they, 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 they sweep the ground from under the confidence of, the, uh, of their children. They, they take away a lot if they don't actually achieve. They're, they're almost like punishment. Mm. And therefore, the self-worth of children becomes uh, undermined. And, and I think at the end, there's got to be a balance. So when you've got somebody in authority like him actually saying, this is the only way... I think that's, um, well, it's just wrong. And and in effect, at the end of the day, it just sort of undermines a lot of things that, that you want. You want children to achieve, but you don't want people, children to be wrung out, exhausted and humiliated. It's a really interesting point that you raise, actually. And I know of a couple who um, recently their son failed the 11 plus and the mother is most definitely a sharper word mother and is 100% blaming the father for the fact that the, the, the couple I hasten to have now separated, but still very involved, obviously, both in the parenting. And um, the poor child is obviously the person that you think of throughout all of this. And is, in my mind, getting a very mixed message because I think that failure or not necessarily succeeding where you want to is a big part of life. Um, and, you know, not necessarily getting the grades and that whole pick yourself up and dust yourself down and flourishing in different ways is so important. And it's almost like we're overlooking this. Is this about what we're doing for the child or is this about what parents can say and put in their boasting books? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, Probably a bit of both, actually, and I think that's where... If you don't have both sides of it and you don't have a kind of an addendum, if you like, to this where you say, look, try your hardest and if you don't succeed and and you can be seen to have tried your hardest, Mm. then we'll try something else Mm. or then we'll we'll build your strengths. Mm. And then if you aren't a particularly great academic, then we'll find you great things that you are good at. Mm. You might be creative. You might be whatever. You know, the, the world needs variety. You know, we're not all clones. And as long as people are loved and respected and cared for and valued, then at the end of the day, all we, all we really need to, to, to care about is um, stopping ministers like this spouting <laughs> rubbish. <laughs> and the interesting yeah. thing is he's actually actively encouraging 
more parents to behave like this. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. It's nothing to do with the children at all. No, th- no. this is this is to do with, as you said, the, the idea of um, putting ticks on your CV or putting ticks on your kind of mm. posting box. Mm. Mm. Now, your second story is one that actually caught my eye earlier this week for many reasons, not least because um, I'm a pregnant woman myself, and. This is bringing into question the possibility that they might try and ban pregnant women drinking altogether. Go into the story on this one, please. Well, I mean, this is a bit, a bit extreme than just yeah. having, a, having a drink. I mean, I mean this this is a, a case where uh, a child who's now six is being who's in care because um, they're no longer in contact with the mother. And the child has actually um, suffered developmental problems through fetal alcohol um, syndrome because the mother continued to drink very, very heavily against all advice, against every effort to try and stop her during the pregnancy. And permission has been given for the court to hear the allegations that the mother ignored all the warnings from antenatal medical staff and social workers about the consumption of alcohol and so essentially has damaged the child. And therefore, the compensation from the um, Criminal Injuries Compensation Board has been has been granted that an application can be made. And that's, this is a real groundbreaking piece of, of legal application. Um, I, I've never heard of this happening before. But we all know that we always try and encourage people not to drink heavily during pregnancy mm-hmm. because just like smoking during pregnancy, it actually affects the fetus. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've, but we've never had this kind of application on behalf of um, the child mm-hmm. up to date. And I think it's a pretty – well, it's not only an interesting story, but it, it could be quite a, a, a groundbreaking piece of law. Do you think that it will come off? Do you think this will be the first of many we'll see? I don't know um, because um, the local authority won its claim in the initial hearing Mm. but it lost it later on an upper tribunal on the grounds that an unborn child is not a person in law (laughs) and therefore no criminal offence could have been committed. Mm. And so I think we're we're, we're looking really here at the edges of of lawmaking. Um, there's a wide-ranging debate here, and um, not only here, but United States and some United States um, states in the U.S. They've actually made it a criminal offence now, and so again across to drink when pregnant. Well, uh, you know, to drink excessively during right. pregnancy. I mean, okay, you define excessive, mm. but um, it just shows you that again here we are within the Western industrialized world with a whole variety of different judgments on a, on a particular piece of activity and also, again, to do with unborn children. There's always a variety of legal um, arguments to, to do with unborn children that aren't universal. Mm-hmm. Oh, and what are they hoping to achieve at the end of this to some form of compensation or...? Well, compensation for the child because mm-hmm. the child, although it didn't go into too much detail, said it had developmental delay uh, and therefore was kind of in some way impaired um, in terms of its, its, its abilities and functioning. But on the other hand, I would love to see, I don't don't mean that badly, but just intellectually, how this pans out if the case is won, because then you'd have all sorts of things like define too much drinking, Mm. define whatever. And I guess it comes down again to medics and others making assessments. Mm. It's funny because the way that it was pitched, and admittedly it was just through social media that I saw the story, it was, you know, this is a groundbreaking story and um, 
could could women, pregnant women, be banned from drinking altogether? Which obviously immediately got my goat. And I think the problem is, speaking on a personal level, as soon as you say you cannot have something, you instantly want it. But, you know, I hasten to have had the odd glass of wine throughout this pregnancy, and that is it. But there's a, a real huge difference between, you know, an odd glass of wine and drinking excessively on a daily basis and as you say and how do you how do you police that anyway how do we make a difference well i mean exactly it's what goes on sometimes in the privacy of people's own homes Mm -hmm. i mean you'd have to have a state where you had cameras and goodness knows what Mm -hmm. else in there but i think we all know though and i've come across many times in my career uh, mothers who have been unable to control the addiction, mm. uh, mothers who have been unable to stop maybe one or two bottles of vodka a day, or, or, or you know, we're talking real excess mm. here. We're not talking a glass of wine or a couple mm. of glasses of wine. That I, I'd be very, very surprised if there was many people that thought that was dangerous. Mm. I, I think what we're talking about is heavy consumption. Mm. And, um, you know, to be quite frank, I mean, I'm no medic, but I've always been convinced of the idea that that level of consumption, just like somebody smoking 40 cigarettes a day while they're pregnant, must have an effect, does have an effect. It's been measured. It's been shown. Mm. It's a no-brainer, isn't Mm. it? Yeah, absolutely. A really interesting one there. Um, I quite like this as well. And again, it's... it's, um, Health. In fact, it's quite nice because it's fa- it's the fathers that we're talking about here, <laughs> mm. and often we hear that you know fathers, you know Charlie Chaplin had numerous children at whatever age it was, and so on and so on. But this research is sort of saying that well, yeah, you can keep sowing your seeds, but watch out a bit, really, isn't it, chaps? Yes. Um, I mean, I don't know what the implications on this are going to be because this is in Sweden where they actually have um, done a thirty-year study from nineteen seventy-three to two thousand and one on uh, 2.6 million babies. And they've uh, shown all sorts of really sort of interesting statistics that um, the age the age of the father when the child was born or conceived, um, if the child was, 40, if the father, sorry, was 45 years or older, there's a marked increase of autism, attention deficit disorder, bipolar disorder, uh, substance abuse and low academic achievement. Gosh. But that's interesting because we're looking there at both physical disorders and cultural things, mm. aren't we? You know? mm. And I wonder how much that is to do with um, a father's level of interest. I don't know. There's so many other things oh, you need to take well, into place. I, please don't. I don't. I, well, I would imagine they would say, for goodness sake, don't take it absolutely mm. because you'd have the things like children within the same family you'd have, who, who, who may have been born years apart. And therefore, the father had different. I was a different age, but they may have had different problems as mm. well. But I think it's interesting in terms of because the, it went on, and I haven't got the information with me, but it went on to talk about the actual medical situation as well, if you like, the uh, the physiological impact in terms of the um, the condition of sperm and and how that is actually affected by the age of the father and so forth, and how that particularly might affect. The actual, the actual conceiving of the child and and the um, what's passed on. It's funny because I, I think that now women are almost chastised for being older mums, mm. and yet I've always been a big believer in well, if you haven't met the right person, then how on earth it just wouldn't be sensible to you know more have children mm. too young. You've got to wait until it's the right point in your life. But we never look into the father and the father's age, and we never hear. The flip side to that, it's always the celebrity father who's 
had another baby at whatever age and so to actually hear that it does have a, it does have ramifications is intriguing but quite what we then do with that information is a, is another well, thing i mean you could argue i mean there's simon cowell at 54 mm. having a baby uh no mm. i mean and I suppose all the jokes about wearing sort of high-waisted nappies and stuff like that would all be sort of come into it. But, I mean, I, I, I think, yes, you're right. A lot of people are having... I mean, there are, as you said, some very prominent film stars and stuff aged sort of 70 or 75, actually, fathering children now mm-hmm. as well. And it would be um, interesting to see if other studies, apart from the Swedish one, can, can back up some of the data that's been collected. So as a father of a 25-year-old daughter now, I have to ask you, could you bear starting again? No. No, simple as that. Well, no, I, I, I think you've got to be... There's all sorts of things to do with energy <laughs> and to do yeah. with ability to, to play and, and, and run around and do all sorts of things. I mean, I, I'd be happy to do it if it happened. It's not going to happen, mm-hmm. but if it, if it would, I could. But um, I suppose grandchildren are the next thing you think about, yeah. and um, you want to be able to be fit and active for them. Although, and there's another story for you in the future, the, the increase in grandparents looking after children mm. now i think that's become a massive um growth industry if you like within in the west mm. um but no I, I mean if it happened it happened you you take life as it comes mm. but i'm not sure i wouldn't choose it no to go back to the simon cow comment actually it brings me on to something that uh, i was going to drop in later i find it very intriguing simon cow the way the whole um media obviously has been spun and he's a big person in himself you'd almost forget or not know that there'd been a mother in the equation it is all about Simon Cowell's um, son and you know he's going to be there his doting father lots of photographs of him looking very much in love with his newborn however he goes on to say that he absolutely refuses to change a nappy and in my mind, that is every inch a part of being a parent, you know, and spending that time with your child. And, yeah, you have to get your hands dirty, but it is that one-on-one time. I mean, how do you, both personally and professionally, what what does that say to you? It says to me that um, I think probably the child would be the loser. Mm. If you live in a celebrity bubble, I, I mean... Let's be honest here. I wonder even if the mother will change a nappy here mm. because they'll be surrounded by staff or nannies and whatever the, the money can buy. Um, I'd be disappointed if there wasn't that sort of personal contact from a parent. Mm. It doesn't surprise me that Simon Cowell would say that. He might even be kind of um, exaggerating just for the sake of the press because he loves to actually wind people up mm. and uh, cause a celebrity, you know, cause a sort of celebrity moment. Mm. But um, no, I mean, I, I just celebrities have been that since time immemorial. You get into this bubble where you think you're on a different planet sometimes, and everything's always done for you. Mm. And whilst everything's always done for you, you forget reality. Yeah, so welcome to the bonkers world. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Okay, our final story for today, Um, childhood obesity. This is intriguing. Yeah, the Daily Mirror came out the other day with this story that said um, 74 children have been taken into care because they're obese. Well, mm, not quite true. Mm. I mean, a little bit of a kind of red top exaggeration I think we've got there. 
um, what, what actually is the situation is that there are increasingly numbers of children who are uh, morbidly obese, who are uh, at great risk to their health. And if it is not a medical condition, a sort of pre-ordained, uh, if you like, genetic condition, and it's something that could have been prevented, then in my mind, it's um, a parental matter. Mm. And it's almost like saying to your child here, at age 10, have a packet of cigarettes or go and play in the middle of the motorway, you know, or whatever. It's, it's unacceptable as a risk to, you know, to a child. You're actually putting the child's health at risk. Now, it wouldn't just be that. There would probably have to be lots of other matters too. And also, to be fair, when I was in practice, some of the most difficult cases that I had to deal with were those that I would call neglect by omission in which maybe the the more common term for it is where love is not enough, mm. in which you had a parent that just didn't know how to be a parent, mm. you know, who either they hadn't any modelling themselves when they were young from their parents or they just had perhaps some difficulties, learning difficulties or whatever, and they, they couldn't grasp it. You know the story. I mean, it would be all sorts of things we come across, like, you know, thin summer clothes in the middle of winter or a bad terrible diet uh, no nu- nutrition or a failure to to take the child for the regular health checks for ears for um, eye checks um, they wouldn't get their inoculations done because the parent would either forget or not realize how important it was mm-hmm. and the whole and the child would arrive at school starving no breakfast you know but not deliberately the, the parent loved the child, mm. but there was just no understanding of being a parent. And the same would therefore go with some who, whose children become morbidly obese because the parent would just feed them, feed them, feed them, feed them, junk food all the time. And that child really was being placed at risk. And so when you get sensationalist headlines that the Daily Mirror had saying 74 children taken into care by social services for being obese... You know, as as if it was some kind of um, ridiculous kind of um, East European state mm-hmm. kind of taking things over. Mm-hmm. It really scares people. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's not the case at all. It's it's a combination of factors in a very sad situation. Mm-hmm. And what do you think can be done there? I mean, like you say, there is a sad fact that there are parents out there who weren't parented themselves. They didn't have the good role models. And therefore, they're really, it's hard for them to be a parent because they don't know. Are there parenting courses? Can people step in before it oh, gets too far? Yes. Well, of course. I mean, this the, the child in a situation like that, um, the local authority or the, or the authorities would only step in after everything else was tried. Unless there was immediate danger, you know. You, you, I mean, in some families, you walk into the house and there you are, there's bare wires hanging off the wall, there's dog's mess everywhere that the child's playing with, uh, or, uh, you, you know, you, you find situations like that where you, you think, my God, I've got to, got to somehow or other get the child out of this. But that's very rare. I mean, what you do is you try parenting parenting classes or you put people into the house um, to, to sort of put their arms around the parents and show them what to do. You, you find houses where there's big lists up on the fridge that says, do this, do that, mm-hmm. do this, do that. Uh, just to remind people of sequence of events, when to feed, when to give medicine, all these different things, how to change 
nappies, mm. or whatever it turns out. And on and on that goes. You know, the community, lots of community groups and lots of charities operate um, modeling, parent parental modeling um, uh, situations. But if all fails and there's no real movement and there's no real help being demonstrated and the parent isn't absorbing it, even though they love the child, then you've got to think about the future of the child. Mm. And um, that's the most sad situation. Mm. And what happens after care? I mean, presumably, are they then returned to their parent? Is the parent in the meanwhile given, you know, this extra help, this extra education? Well, uh, like I said, even whether it's with the child in care Mm. or the child being worked with, the family being worked with before that happened, it all depends on what the what the parent can absorb. Mm. You know, if the parent can learn, that's terrific. That's what you want. If the parent can't learn, no matter what, mm. and e- even when they're on their own, um, if they can't learn, it might be the child's fostered and the parent actually f- is allowed to sort of work with the foster family to look at what they think is the best model for parenting a child. But at the end of the day, there are just some people who, sadly, through almost no fault of their own, aren't capable of having the capacity to properly parent. It's ironic, isn't it, really, that we started today by chatting about sharp-elbowed parents and how this is being actively encouraged by one minister. And then we're ending on the story of some parents who weren't parented themselves. And so, you know, they're really on the back foot to start with. How how can we be in this culture? How can we be in this society? How can these two ends exist? Well, if you look at the figures, it's it's, it's we're any day in England uh, and today there are between thirty and forty thousand children who are the subject of at risk plans who are considered to be at risk from the the, the adults they live with. Any day. Now, you, David, you obviously keep yourself incredibly busy, and I know that you've got on that note, you're organising... Now, I hope I'm going to get this title right. It's a conference um, called This Is My Childhood. Right. There Will Be No Other, which is just the first line of a poem that one of the people wrote. Um, but it's it was stimulated by uh, the UNICEF uh, initiative on the first 1,001 days of a child's life from conception up to about age two. And uh, it was launched in Parliament and there was an all-party parliamentary group set up on this and um, senior people from UNICEF came across from New York to launch this. Um, And Dame Tessa Jowell took a lead on this. Uh, She had a lead on on these kind of matters anyway in Parliament. Um, And um, it was really to look at almost things like the dangers to children from things such as what's called, in shorthand, the toxic trio, which is domestic violence, substance abuse, and uh, mental health matters within adults in families where there are very young children, and the impact of these kind of trauma on these children and how to work with children of that age where these things exist. Um, 
And so we thought we'd recreate that in Bristol and have a conference on it. Mm. And uh, Dame Tessa Jowell agreed to come and be the keynote speaker. Brilliant. Um, and so, and we've got some fabulous other speakers as well, mm. who are all experts in 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 parenting matters or in you know wider family matters. And so that's going on on the 4th of April at Ashton Court. Brilliant. And is this open to anyone or is it professionals only? Or? Oh, it's open to anybody. I mean, unfortunately, we have to make a charge. But, I mean, at the end of the day, um, we try to keep it as, modestly, uh, as modest as we can. And if people want to find out more about it, what can they do? Well, um, we're, we're doing it in conjunction with an organisation called... <laughs> with, with, they won't love me for this, but one of the most difficult names to remember <laughs> called BASPSCAN, which is the British Agencies for the Study and Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect. Well remembered. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and my company. Right. And um, it, you can find it on our website, if you like, which is uh, uh, but my podcasting website, which is what I'm transferring everything to, mm. which is um, the so, it's socialworldpodcast.com. Socialworldpodcast.com. And go on, this is, this is your chance. Tell us your bit. Um, great to speak from one fellow bro- a podcaster to another. Um, you know, mm. w- what do you talk about? How to get chatting? Do you know everything and anything? I'm, uh, it's like being a little boy in a sweet shop. <laughs> um, the opportunity to do things and talk to people and interview people that I've always wanted to. Mm. The opportunity to do it not restricted by um, a little bit of geography, sometimes possibly like um, broadcasters are, you know, in, in the region mm. uh, um, and talk to people internationally or, you know, far away. Mm. Um because of my background in social work, a lot of it's geared to people and issues to do with social work, which, of course, is such a broad church. But on the other hand, I called it the Social World Podcast to give myself a bit of elbow room mm-hmm. and talk to several other people. And I had a lovely interview that I did. Um, in fact, I, I got my niece to do uh, live from the Maasai Mara in Kenya. Uh, uh, I was a tour guide there because I was talking about the disappearing communities. Mm. And, um, I mean, she's terrific. She She's, at the moment, I shouldn't say this, but she's on her way into Burma via China to do some filming. Mm. And, um, you know, hopefully getting me some interviews there as well. Mm. But at, at the end of the day, it gives you such a broad opportunity, and I hope, um, good listening. Mm. Well, David, it's been cracking listening this morning and really nice talking to you. And I'm sure it'll be the first of lots to come. And you, Faye, thanks. Well, there we are. It was just great fun being interviewed and I really enjoyed Faye's interviewing skills. Um, Look forward to doing it again soon. I think we've agreed that um, we'll do, do quite a bit with each other in the future. Now, let's have a listen to that BBC interview concerning Daniel Pilka. Listen to that, David Niven, former chair of the British Association of Social Workers. Morning, David. Oh, morning, Steve. Hi. Is this a natural reaction? I I mean, when you work in this kind of environment where um, you're emotionally connected to the work that you do, I mean, how could you not be? I, I suppose this kind of feeling for social workers is quite the norm, is it? Yes, it is, actually. I mean, even if you weren't directly involved, uh, the impact is like, you know, one of these kind of things, you know, the ripples, the pebble in a pond kind of thing. There's just no way 
that the department and people in it, because, I mean, social workers, at the end of the day, really usually are people that care. Yeah. And, and if you care, you feel. And if you feel, you get very upset if something like this happens. And, and you keep searching and searching and searching for something that you could have possibly done or you know, your colleague could have possibly done. But unfortunately, this was an, a whole tragedy that involved education, medics, everybody. You know, the police and goodness knows who else were all involved in missing this one. I, I, and you're absolutely right, and I, I really worry that this will get lost in the blur of, oh, this was a problem with multi-agency communication, because as you rightly say, I think each agency has its own case to answer. But because yeah. we're looking at social workers today, I wonder, is there an ultimate responsibility there? I mean, do they have the overarching responsibility, and, and, and whatever the police did or didn't do, whatever hospitals and schools did and didn't do, whatever the council did and didn't do, really the social workers are the backstop they're the wicket keepers of all of this are they or is that unfair no it's not unfair i mean social workers do social services do have a lead in child protection amongst the agencies that's absolutely correct um you know when you unpick things there's always angles and there's always things that could have happened and whatever but you know somebody's got to step up and say you know responsibility here although it was everybody's responsibility and the school didn't see things but there was such a manipulative parent here. I mean, sometimes you'd have to be magicians to see past things. I mean, the other child in the family that went to the same school was perfectly okay, you know, and so the, the, pe the teacher swallowed the idea that Daniel had an eating disorder, whereas in effect he was being abused. It's just so tricky here, but you're right. Social services have got a lead here, and what that person said, the social worker said on your interview there, is quite correct. You feel it. You can't help it. You feel responsible. You accept it. You hold your hands up. But when it comes down to it, you do need the tools to do the job, mm. and you really do need the, the the numbers to do it. Think of it. Listen to that. Twenty was it twenty one thousand? You were saying in yeah. your interview there, yeah. um, cases in Coventry in the last year. I mean, that's a heck of a lot to get right. And do you really believe that is a question that needs answering now, is systemically did we get it right, but also have, have we got the right framework in place to be able to deal with this? Well, we should have the right framework, I mean, and there should be things, but, I mean, there are things you can always argue, the cuts, you know, the, the reductions in numbers, the resources being challenged, the government's austerity measures, Uncle Tom Cobley... Although I have to say, David, I mean, numbers, sheer numbers, really that argument isn't going to cut it, is it? Because it wasn't that they didn't have enough people to visit Daniel regularly. They visited Daniel regularly, but didn't... didn't pick up on what was happening. It no, wasn't, no, it wasn't it, numbers, was it, really? Well, what I was saying, Shane, really was the fact that it, across the country, sorry, I was, I was taking right, bigger okay. than Coventry, so because every day there are, there's, there are 40,000 children every day in England and Wales who are subject of, of uh, risk uh, assessment plans and who are considered to be at risk from adults and who are being interrupted and managed and watched by social services and others. Mm. It's a heck of a number. And if you've got at least even a sort of a 10% vacancy rate, you're kind of piling things on, and the social workers to kind of mix metaphors. But the social workers are always running around, like with plates on the end of sticks, you know, just to yeah. keep things spinning. Mm. And if you don't have the support or the good communications with the other agencies, you don't get the information. You don't get the information you don't get all the picture. You, you don't get all the picture, you miss things. And you also need people to process that information, isn't it, I guess, as well. David, fascinating to talk to you. Thanks for your time. David Niven, former chair of the British Association of Social Workers. There's more on uh, Midlands Today, BBC Once.
Well, that's it for this week again. Thank you for listening. Remember to leave your comments and reviews. That SpeakPipe facility, uh, just one click beside every podcast, every blog. Let me know what you think. Give me your opinions, your ideas, thoughts for the future. Remember these conferences I mentioned, 4th of April in Bristol. This is my childhood. There will be no other. Excellent conference, excellent lineup. Dame Tessa Jowell headlining. Also on the 19th of uh, March, before that, up in Birmingham, on Social Work, International Social Work Day, uh, giving that seminar on technology and social work. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you there. That's free, so come on along. Apart from that, uh, Twitter, at Dave Niven, socialworldpodcast.com, iTunes, download it, leave reviews, tell me what you think. But apart from anything else, I look forward to you joining me again next time. Thank you.